Welcome to Draft Countdown. I'm Scott Wright from DraftCountdown.com, and my usual co-host Shane Halm had other obligations this week, so I thought this would might be a good opportunity to to maybe get a different pr- perspective. Uh, you've heard Shane and I talk about this group of players so much ad nauseum here over the past uh, six months, basically already now and counting. Uh, I thought it'd be fun to maybe bring in another draft analyst and and, and kind of pick his brain and, and maybe even let him steer the discussion to a certain degree and and talk about the the storylines the 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 the, the, the storylines at each position that intrigue him. So my guest this week is going to be Kyle Krabs from NDT Scouting, who I've been enjoying following on Twitter. He's working on a terrific draft guide that he's going to be putting out. So uh, welcome him to the show for the first time, Kyle. Thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, last year was uh, the first chance I had to get into podcasts, and I really enjoyed it. And, you know, you were gracious enough to offer me the opportunity, and this is my first chance at it this year. So uh, it's something I really enjoy doing. I always enjoy uh, just sitting down, talking about the draft, breaking down the, the specifics of positions and the class as a whole. Uh, so this is going to be fun. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, I'm with you, too. I really enjoy doing this podcast. It's one of my favorite parts of the job. But before we get into things, tell us, uh, tell us first of all, what does NDT scouting stand for? Because I didn't know beforehand. I asked you, asked you before the show, so I figured we can get it out in the ether once and for all. Yeah, we're going to put it on the record. Uh, when I originally started in October 2013, the blog that I was running was called NFL Draft Tracker. And I uh, went down to the East-West Shrine game and actually uh, put up some uh, some of the measurements. And I remember being tagged um, in one of the, the major draft running blogs uh, that I had lived up to my name as the NFL draft tracker by tracking down some shrine measurements. Um, in the process of just the evolution of what I'm doing and, and the product that I'm putting out there, uh, I wanted to make it a little bit more reflective of being a third-party scouting agency as compared to just a draft blog of sorts. So NDT, NFL Draft Tracker, ran along with it, got shortened up, and we threw scouting on the end. Well, and your website is ndtscouting.com, and everyone should uh, follow you on Twitter at NDT Scouting. So I encourage everyone to, to give you a follow and, and keep an eye out for your draft guide. I'll give you another chance at the end of the show to uh, to let everybody know about that. But let's get into it. And and like I said, I, I really didn't over-prepare for the show simply because I want to get different perspectives. I could have gone through each position and, and, and picked out topics that interest me, but like I said, you guys have been, all the listeners have been hearing that all year long. This is an opportunity to get an outside perspective, and, and hopefully it will lead to maybe some different opinions, some, some, some different angles, different perspectives. So, uh, so with that, Kyle, I'm going to let you kick it off. To, uh, let's go with the quarterback position. What's the first thing that stands out to you, or what storyline intrigues you at quarterback? Uh, I'm really fascinated by the treatment that Marcus Mariota is being run through uh, right along line with the, the Teddy Bridge, well, some of the parallels with the Teddy Bridgewater treatment from last year. Um, very different as far as the schemes that they played, um, but at the same time they're being criticized for a lot of the same things. As far as frame, you know, there was a running uh, narrative last year with Bridgewater, how, you know, the skinny knees situation and all of that. And, you know, Mariota got a lot of talk about being really thin framed and he comes into the combine and he's, I believe, only seven pounds lighter than Winston was at the weigh-ins, oh, nine pounds, I'm sorry. 
Um, and just the general, you know, at the start of the season, Mariota was consensus top player, has an outstanding season, um, wins the Heisman. So you would expect this fever pitch of media support for Mariota. And it all starts kind of crumbling in on him as we get into the process. And it's really at the point where, you know, you look at mock drafts now and you see him in the teens. And I don't think there's any possible way just because he's not a scheme universal scheme quarterback, so you're going to have to tailor your playbook to him. But if you give him the opportunity to run an offense that's tailored to what he does well, I think he ultimately has the best upside of any quarterback in the class, including Winston. Well, and and, and you have the, your quarterbacks, Mariota, Winston. I have him, Winston, Mariota, but 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 obviously pretty similar. And, and I gave – I think there's a drop-off. My top two players in the draft are Leonard Williams and Jameis Winston. And then I think there's a drop-off. Then I think there's another group of maybe a half a dozen guys. But I gave Mariota the edge for my number three overall spot, if for no other reason than the, the, the positional value. But I guess I'm interested in what your take is. With Mariota, do you think it's a product of just over-analysis because he went back for another year? He kind of subjected himself to, to everybody really digging in and nitpicking his game. Do you think it's an issue of maybe teams are just scared of the unknown because we haven't seen him operate a traditional offense that they're scared off by that aspect? Or is there maybe a particular part of his game? that What, what is the reasoning? Why do you think people are kind of picking Mariota apart now and, and talking? I mean, like you said, there's some people who have him dropping out of the top ten. I can't envision that. There's just too many quarterback-needy teams to have a guy like Mariota fall that far, even if he isn't a sure thing. And, and honestly, if, if I'm the Tennessee Titans, I think passing on Mariota at two is a, a borderline fireable offense. Uh, I, I just don't know how you can justify doing that if you're Tennessee Titans. Is he a sure thing? No, but I think history has shown that you're not going to consistently win in the NFL with a stud quarterback, and, and Mariota has the potential to be that. So, so why do you think he is getting picked apart? Well, I think it's really hard to get a thumb down on how much of this is actual league impressions and how much of this is just stuff that's being filtered out and the media picks up on. And, you know, because a lot of what we're hearing is uh, from the media. So it's really difficult, and we won't know until the draft comes when it actually goes down what the actual valuation is for Mariota amongst teams. But, you know, I can understand the, the scheme situations. There was a running narrative throughout the course of the season that, you know, all his throws are wide open and he doesn't make window throws. But, you know, when you watch him, he flashes everything. You know, he doesn't do it regularly because he's not asked to do it regularly. But he will flash hitting the top of his drop, uh, correctly reading the defense, and firing to his primary read. He will work across the field of play. It might not be as smooth or as quick as some of the other pro-style quarterbacks, but he shows he's capable of shifting his eyes and resetting his feet. Um, and I think it's just an issue of people having a hard time projecting that into a full-time basis. Uh, but with with somebody like that, that he shows the natural arm talent, that he has the ability to place balls on people's hands, um, all three levels of the field, short, intermediate, and deep. Uh, he, he's got good velocity. He's got excellent maneuverability in the pocket and getting out on the run. Uh, he, he checks a lot of boxes. Uh, whether or not NFL teams see it that way, I'm not sure. Uh, and I, I definitely think he subjected himself to a lot of the hyper-analysis. I think the only quarterback that I can remember 
um, in recent memory that went back after being highly touted and was not subjected to that is Andrew Luck. So, I mean, that speaks for itself. So I do certainly think a lot of it, or at least a portion of it, is just you're, you're coming into the season as a highly touted player, and even though he performed well up to expectations, um, you're still going to be subjected to people going through your game with a fine toothbrush looking for those flaws. Well, and, and then I, I think after those two come off the board relatively early, that's where it gets really interesting. Who's going to be the next quarterback off the board and how early? And I, I, this quarterback class, we've said it, but it, when I recently updated my rankings, it was even worse than I, I guess I kind of even thought. Uh, an average of 12.2 quarterbacks have been drafted uh, over the last nine years, I believe it is. And and this year, I, I think I post on Twitter, I think there's maybe seven total that I'd be willing to invest a draft pick in so uh but I, I think I know what your answer is going to be based on your rankings but who would be your third quarterback and and how early would you be willing to to, to take that plunge because I think we we both have the next same three guys Brett Hundley from UCLA Garrett Grayson from Colorado State and Bryce Petty from Baylor and and I think all three of those guys are going to get pushed up the board a little bit further than they should just because of the the dearth of options at that position this year but but make a case for your number three. Well, I really, I really, really, really like Brett, uh, Brett Hundley. Um, he's another tools guy. He's not a finished product. Um, and it, it's funny, you know, you, you have some people that watch him and, and they come away and they say, I can see all the tools. I can see the arm strength. Uh, it's a matter of consistency with him. And then there's other people who, who just seem to, to pick up on the fact that there's times when he, he drops his eyes uh, with pressure and, and misses throws and eats the ball and takes sacks. Uh, so he's a really polarizing prospect. But, you know, I think, as you said, with the amount of teams that need a quarterback and with the skill set that he has, uh, the potential that he has, uh, I would be surprised if Hunley was still on the board in the mid-20s. Um, I personally, my personal belief is if you need a quarterback and there's a quarterback that you feel as though can be a franchise quarterback, you know, it's the only position that breaks the trend of, you know, valuing and following your board for uh, relative value. If you need a quarterback and there's one on the board, you got to go get them. So if I'm, say, uh, for example, if Cleveland decided they were going to give up on Johnny Manziel and he's on the board at 12, I would certainly feel comfortable taking Brett Hundley as early as the teens or 12 in this particular scenario. Um, I think that the Eagles is a, a team that he's been tied to with some, some rumors of potentially having uh, some connections going there. Um, I don't know how much is to it. I don't know what Chip Kelly's plan is with Sam Bradford for the long term. But I definitely think Hunley will be a um, top 20 selection. And it just comes down to a team's going to feel that they're going to be able to get the most out of what he has as a skill set and his natural arm strength. You know, every once in a while he'll flash outstanding ball placement. Uh, he could put a ball on a rope for 30, 40 yards. Uh, made some clutch throws. He he really didn't have a whole lot of help at UCLA. Um, of the games I watched, and I watched eight, his 
his offensive line consistently was giving up interior and exterior pressure, very rarely got the chance to sit back, hit the top of his drop, and comfortably survey the field. It was just looked like he had a, a hard time a lot of times getting into a rhythm uh, with the offense. But I think if you give him an opportunity somewhere where he has a solid interior offensive line that, that will protect him from pressure in his face, um, and you give him some time to adjust and develop chemistry, I think you'll see a little bit more consistency and a little bit more um, production, quality play out of Hundley. Well, and, and, and I've kind of compared Brett Hundley to Jake Locker in that all of the tools seem to be there. It's just a matter of the consistency. But I, I, I've said he, he, it's kind of like if you're dying of thirst in the desert, a thimble full of water looks pretty appetizing. It's not ideal, but it's better than nothing. And I think that's kind of what Brett Hundley is in this quarterback class. It's a risk. It's not a perfect situation, but it looks a whole lot better than trying to bring in a, a, an Anthony Boone or a Blake Sims or a Shane Carden uh, because he does have that, that high-level starting quarterback upside uh but before we move on to uh, another position though uh a couple one more quick question on Hundley I guess for you uh because you you seem to be quite high I'm I'm, I like Hundley I understand why he's gonna get pushed up I wouldn't take him in the first round but I can understand how somebody could talk themselves into him especially if you need a quarterback but how much of a project do you think he is what do you think his timeline is going to be do you think he could play as a rookie do you think he needs to sit for a year or two a la maybe Steve McNair when he was coming out what's his time Timeline with Hundley because I think how he's developed is going to go a long way towards determining what type of pro he's going to be. I think it could go one way or the other, and it might come down to how the team that brings him into the organization handles him. Well, yeah, I think you're right, and you know it seems like teams kind of if, if they're taking players early, there's this uh, newfound expectation that you're going to get him into the starting lineup sometime in year one. Um, Blake Bortles, the guy last year for me, I think he was my eighth quarterback. I still had him top 50, but um, I, I would not have played Blake Bortles at all uh, his rookie year, and he really struggled. And I can see where, you know, there's some concerns with uh, flaws and consistency issues with Hunley's game if you, quote, unquote, throw him into the fire and, you know, he does not have a, a cast to be able to prop him up until he's adjusted to the speed of the game and everything along those lines that it it could shell shock him a little bit. Um, Ideally, Hunley probably does not start uh, until maybe late in the year if the team is not making a a push for uh, a playoff spot or anything along those lines. Um, But I, I think he has the potential to play effectively because he does win uh, with his legs as well. So as long as an offense is willing to uh, call some plays, get him on the run, get him out in space, let him run the football, uh, it adds a little bit of a different element. And he's a good enough athlete that he can, you know, win with his legs enough to prevent teams from just totally teeing off on him as a passer. Uh, But ideally, I wouldn't start him in year one, no. 
I was kind of in the same position with you on Blake Bortles, too. I actually had him at number 29 in my overall rankings, and it's not that I didn't see the potential. I I, th- I think he's got the tools. I, I just didn't see the polish to take him as early as the Jaguars did. And, and I think that's kind of the same thing uh, with Hundley, where uh, the tools are there. It's, it's just going to be a little bit of a project. Uh, before we go to the next position, uh, we're going to close out each one by having you give us an overrated player and an underrated player, and, and maybe just a, a really quick sentence or two explanation uh for each. So uh who's your overrated quarterback? Uh I see a lot of a lot of love for Brandon Bridge as a developmental quarterback and uh he he just he does not know where the ball's going when he throws it. He has so many issues with accuracy and consistency and you know, yeah, he's big and tall and he's not as good as an athlete as he was advertised when he tested at the combine. And then you pair that with this cannon of an arm. So you can understand why there's some appeal there. Um, But I did not give Bridge a draftable grade. I gave him a priority undrafted free agent grade. Um, Just not a super big fan. Uh, As far as an underrated guy, uh, Garrett Grayson, who had his pro day just earlier this week, uh, he's my fourth quarterback, and he's 37th overall on my board at this point in time. Uh, I'll have the board finalized, but there's not really anybody underneath of them that's going to challenge that hasn't already had their grade finalized. Uh, I think in a West Coast offense where, you know, you're utilizing his accuracy and you allow him to make quick, easy decisions with the football, three-step drop game, get him uh, in some moving pockets, uh, he can be effective. Uh, and, and there was some somebody that linked him to Denver as – uh, a Gary Kubiak type quarterback, and I really like that. You know, I think that would be a, a nice role for him, and I think if you get him in an offense like that, he can potentially be a starter some point down the line. All right, let's talk about some running backs, uh, and, we'll, and we'll do the same format. Uh, well, what's the first thing? What's a storyline that kind of jumps out to you? And, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be the top guy. Maybe it's mid rounds, whatever it might be. What What's like the one storyline that kind of intrigues you right now at running back? Well, I'm going to be. You know, I know you said it doesn't have to be the top, but where Todd Gurley goes is going to be fascinating for me. Um, just as far as, you know, I've heard that his medicals are going to come back really clean and, you know, it, it won't be that big of a deal. Uh, but just the overall league valuation of the position in the last couple of years. Um, he's this highly touted guy, and, you know, they're talking about this is a guy that's going to break the mold for the league with wide, uh, running backs. And then he tears his ACL and, you know, you don't know if he's going to be able to contribute at the beginning of the year. So do teams hold off on him? Do teams push him down? Does Melvin Gordon end up going over top of him? I don't think that he should. But at the same time, you know, if a team's looking for plug-and-play, uh, explosive caliber running back, I could see a team making a justification for it. Um, but just in general, where the league, especially with such a deep class, I think this is an excellent class to need ball carriers, a lot of quality value uh, late in round two, early in round three for me this year. Uh, If you need a running back and the class is this deep, but you have this supposed transcendent talent, you know, where does he go? And then you throw an injury factor on top of it. I'm just really interested to see how that plays out. Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I think it really speaks to what a special talent Gurley is, that considering the devaluation of position, his position coming off a major knee injury, that he's still going to be a first-round pick. It's just a matter of how early. Uh, I think that really says something. And, and this year with, with Gurley and Gordon is going to be a, a, a true litmus test 
to, to see what the value of a stud running back prospect is at the NFL draft these days. Uh, the last two years, we haven't had a runner in the first round, but uh, the, part of it was the devaluation of the position, but part of it is we just haven't had a talent like Gurley. And in my new rankings, I had Gurley number four overall. Now, philosophically, I would never take a running back that early, but he's a special talent at that position. And if he can just stay healthy, he's going to be one of the best running backs in the league. And, and, but, but you talked about the depth and uh, it's kind of a thought I had too, is where is the sweet spot for running back for you? If you were going to, if let's say you're looking for a starting running back, where, what range would you target? Cause for me, I think it would kind of be round three, round four, maybe even round five. I'd be looking at guys like, Mike Davis, like David Johnson, like Buck Allen, like Jeremy Langford. Uh, I, I just think there's going to be such great depth. Now, are you going to get a special talent like Gurley? No, probably not. But could you get a really productive runner in the fourth or fifth round this year? I absolutely think you can. So w- if you're looking for a running back, where would you pull the trigger? What 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 would be your kind of game plan at that position? I'd, I would be targeting probably uh, very end of day three, very beginning or – very end of day two, very beginning of day three, uh, just because I have five backs that are valued uh, second round or greater as far as the value that they would pick or that they would be as a draft selection in a vacuum. Now, when you factor in just how deep the class is, uh, there's another five players that I gave third round values to as far as this player would be worth a third round draft selection with what my philosophy is on with the position and the, and the traits that are important. Um, when you factor that in on top of it, you know, these third round value guys are probably going to get bumped down the list. The names that you mentioned, like the Mike Davis, the Buck Allen, those, those are two backs that I really like. They have a lot of versatility. Um, Davis, I think might be the most well-balanced back um, outside of maybe Jay Ajayi in the entire class. Uh, he does all three things well. Uh, compact guy, you know, he, he's capable of absorbing contact as a pass protector. Uh, he'll misread a couple pass protections, but, you know, he's very thick, physical, uh, can get underneath of free runners as a pass protector. You know, watch his 2013 tape and watch him get down the field as a receiver uh, I believe it was against Georgia. Don't quote me on that, though. But he ended up running a wheel route and making a spectacular one-handed catch like 35 yards down the field. Uh, very active as a receiver. And then he's just one of those bowling ball, tight, compact guys as a runner. Got a little bit of a burst out in the open field. Uh, question for him is just durability, being able to stay healthy. Um, but I definitely agree with you in – end of round three, beginning of round four, there's going to be a lot of very good values at the position because you can get a guy that you can plug and play as a starter. You know, he might not be a very polished three-down back as far as being adequate as a pass protector, but how many backs coming into the league are? You know, you can you can get a guy that you can give 200-plus carries to round three, round four in this year's class. All right, before we close out running back, let's uh, get a one overrated runner and one underrated runner from you. Uh, I, I'll i say this. My overrated is going to be Amir Abdullah. Uh, I really like Amir Abdullah. Uh, I just do not think he is a feature back. You know, he's a guy that I would give 10 to 12 touches to a game, uh, let him use his short area quickness, uh, try and utilize him out in space. 
Um, I do not see him. He had success at Nebraska running between the tackles and running downhill and 25-plus carries a game. I just don't see that for him in the NFL. Uh, So when people, I believe Mike Mayock has him as his third running back, it's a little bit rich for me. Um, But I do like his skill set. He's a very fun player to watch. As far as an underrated guy, uh, I'll go Buck Allen out of Southern Cal. Uh, He's a physical runner. Uh, He's capable of getting north and south. Struggles at times with traffic underneath his feet. He'll get bottled up in the backfield, but he's got some good open field burst. Uh, He's not afraid to drop his nose and and run you over in the the second level if you're in the hole. Uh, And he was really productive at USC. Um, He's a fun player to watch. You know, he averaged uh, 23 or 28 carries, 188 yards, and two touchdowns this year against Arizona State, Arizona, and UCLA. Uh, One of the things that I look for in my production score, which is one of the the four peripheral metrics that I measure players up to, uh, is production against the top three opponents in any given season over the last two years. Um, He's got outstanding production. Uh, surprising amount of athleticism. I didn't expect a 4-5-3 on tape. Um, good explosiveness. So he checked a lot of boxes in this offseason. So he's a guy that I think is really undervalued at this point. All right, let's shift to wide receivers and uh, another strong group of pass catchers in this class. Not not on the level of last year, but still pretty darn good. So a lot to talk about here. Uh, but what, what's, what's the storyline or the situation that kind of jumps out to you? Uh, I'm really going to be interested to see um, what happens with how many receivers go in the first round because this is a talented class. Uh, There's a lot of guys that I like. I've got five wide receivers inside of my top 32, um, but not some names that are being thrown around as potential first-round picks, guys like uh, Doriel Green-Beckham, Devin Smith, uh, Brashad Perryman, those are names that, you know, you hear a little bit of murmurs about potential first-round guys, and I it, I just don't see it for one reason or another. You know, each of those three guys uh, is a little bit different for the reasons that I don't support them as being that highly valued. Um, but I just think it's fascinating to see so many names that are creeping up in this conversation and who ends up going and who ends up not. Well, that kind of intrigues me, too. It's kind of that battle for the, the, the second tier of wideouts. Uh, I, I mean, Kevin White, Amari Cooper, and probably Devontae Parker are going to be the first three guys off the board, probably somewhere in the top 15, 20 overall. But, but that's where I think it gets interesting then. I think there's still a lot of jockeying maybe between that second tier of wideouts and, and not only who, who's going to be four, five, six. But when does that run start? Does it start early 20s? Does it start late in the first round? So I guess I'm just interested from your perspective, who who kind of leads that second tier of the wideouts, and and where do you think they should come off the board? Well, if we're not talking White, Cooper, and Parker, uh, the next two guys that immediately stand out to me are Jalen Strong and Nelson Aguilar. Uh, Very different players. Uh, Strong, you know, surprised a lot of people with his uh, performance measurements. People say it doesn't show up on tape, and realistically, no, it it really doesn't. Uh, You get him out in the open, he can sustain separation, uh, and he can break off big plays down the field. But, you know, you didn't see that burst and that crispness out of his breaks. Uh, But Strong's a guy I really like. Uh, Two-year Division I player was a JUCO transfer. 
his improvements from 2013 to 2014 uh, was outstanding. You know, showed a lot of, took a lot of strides, uh, looked a lot better as a receiver. He still got some room to grow, uh, but just his his ball skills, his ability to high point the football, his uh, body control and ability to turn at the waist and, and reach up and make plays on balls up in the air, I think is something that's going to be fairly valuable to NFL teams uh, because that's how a lot of throws are won these days is throw it right at the back of his helmet and let him adjust to the ball and make a play. Uh, that's something, those are the kinds of throws that Strong really accelerated or excelled at in 2014. As far as Aguilar, Aguilar is just a really fun player to watch. Uh, really crisp route runner, very quick at the top of his breaks. He's capable of challenging on all three levels of the defense. Um, fairly dynamic, not super explosive or physical after the catch, but he will break off run after catch yardage uh, just because he's got a little bit of short area quickness and he's got good open field instincts. Uh, those two guys, I would not be surprised if they were also first-round selections. Uh, one quick follow-up on Aguilar, and I like him too. I guess my the concern I'd have about him is, is he a number one? Because if I'm going to take a wide receiver in the first round, I want somebody that I feel can be a go-to guy. Uh, I feel like you can get a, a number two receiver beyond the first round. So I, I guess that's what, what my follow-up for you on Aguilar is. Do you, view, do you think he has the potential to be a go-to guy, or do you think he's more of a complementary target? I think he would very much fit the bill of like a like the the role that Green Bay values their receivers in. So I don't think he's an alpha, if that's what you're asking, no. Yes. I, yeah. I don't think he's a guy you target fifteen, twenty times a game or some absurd number like that. Um but he wins and he wins with consistency. So if you're looking for a or if you're a team looking for a receiver that you can move around, you know, he was effective on the boundary, he was effective in the slot, uh they moved him around sets. Uh, and, and he won everywhere he was. He's capable of getting off uh, uh, press coverage. You know, there's times where, you know, he'll take a couple too many extra steps or, you know, if a, a physical defender gets his hands on him, he's rerouted off his route. Um, but he does have the short area quickness, and he has shown the ability to beat press coverage. So I think he's a guy that has value because he's not boxed into a specific role. Or, you know, he's a he's a flanker. He's a slot. You know, he can be both, and he can win at both. All right, and let's hear one underrated receiver and one overrated receiver from you. Uh, so I'm going to go overrated. Uh, the the love for Sammy Coates, you know, I really don't get. Uh, pretty much a one trick pony, vertical guy. Uh, effort level is not consistent across the board. He likes to roll out of stances. Uh, on runs or throws the other way, quick throws, um, uh, inconsistent results, tracking the ball deep, a uh, couple drops too. So he's a guy that throws up a couple red flags for me. And he's another name that you hear top 40 potentially for him just because he his size and speed measurables check the boxes. And I don't really see it. Uh, if we're going to talk underrated, I'll take Chris Harper out of Cal. Um, he's a he's a role player. He's to me he's Deshaun Jackson light, um, more than just the small frame and cow comparison. There uh, wins with speed. Is capable of getting vertical. Uh, very effective after the catch in the open field. Uh, ran a four four two at his pro day. I was surprised he didn't get a combine invite. 
Uh, he's surprisingly effective as a route runner too. You know, he was a guy that when I watched him, I was surprised to see you know, how versatile he was. I was expecting a guy that ran a bunch of nine routes, but you know, he worked underneath across the middle of the field and you know, caught some screen passes. So he was a guy that kind of stood out to me as a guy that I don't think gets enough attention. All right, let's move on to tight ends. And before we get into it, uh, we got to get you to weigh in on Michigan's Devin Funches because Shane and I have kind of a running debate on Funches. I'm team tight end. Shane is team wide receiver, and we kind of ask everybody that comes on the show where they weigh in. So, so where do you check in on Devin Funches position wise? Uh, you're you're gonna get me in trouble with Shane here. Uh, <laughs> I evaled him as I evaled him as a tight end. And the reason why I did that was because the bulk of his time spent there uh, and just for the sake of athletic measurements and production measurements and and size, you know, I try and give players the benefit of the doubt and place them where they're going to score better. Uh, Whereas if you put a guy with uh, who averaged three catches for 46 yards and .4 touchdowns uh, and evaluated him as a wide receiver, his production – uh, scores would not be very good. Uh, so I try to project him as far as his evaluation where he would score most of his benefit. I did run him through both, and he scored higher as a tight end, so that's where I slotted him. Uh, I don't think he's a flanker. I don't think he's a guy that you can consistently line up outside and, and say, all right, go run vertical, go create separation unless you're running comeback routes where you're allowed to get physical at the top of your route. Uh, I think he's a guy that is the Jimmy Graham flex kind of guy. Uh, I think if you put his hand in the dirt, you're you're losing with him. You're you're misusing his skill set. Get him flex, get him out in space. You know, he's effective breaking down blocking on the second level in that way, but not as an inline blocker. Uh, and you you let him use his size and athleticism mismatch against linebackers and safeties in the slot. I think that's where Funches wins at the next level. Well, and that's my argument all along was just that I think he's more of a mismatch, more of a difference maker as a tight end than he would be at wide receiver. But it's honestly, it's been closer. I'm glad to finally get another one on my side. It's basically been a 50-50 split from the people we've talked to. And I kind of thought I was going to win that debate. So I'm glad to get one more check in my column at least. But uh, beyond Funches, what's what's the storyline at tight end that kind of jumps out at you? Uh, Jeff Hireman. Uh, I know we were asking for one overrated, one underrated, but I'm going to cut right to the chase. I think Jeff Hireman's criminally underrated as a tight end. Uh, the role that he was used at at Ohio State uh, changed dramatically in 2014. He was asked almost non-existently to be a wide receiver, or to be a receiver, a pass catcher. Um, but it's almost a blessing in disguise because you saw at the end of 2013 when he started coming on strong as a pass catcher. So he's able to get over top on the second level, work the seam passes, and he has enough athleticism to, to break off some chunk yardage over the middle of the field as a pass catcher. And just how much they asked him to block, you know, I thought he was an adequate to good blocker beforehand. Body positioning is outstanding as a blocker. His hands are effective. Uh, he works his head inside to, to per- correctly position himself in, in gaps as a blocker. Uh, I have Hireman as my top tight end in the class. I absolutely love his game. I think you get him in a role where you can ask him not to be a pass protector on passing downs because you've got uh, first-time quarterback starting and, you know, you let his hamstring heal. And 
I, I think he's a lot better player than what he's given credit for just because he wasn't asked to be that player that Max Williams was this year. I'm with you on Hireman. In fact, I think just a couple of days ago I tweeted that. And I think there's a drop-off after Funchess, Max Williams, and Clive Walford. But I think Hireman might be the best of the rest. And I have him. I think he's a day-two pick all day long. So I'm glad you mentioned him. And like you said, I think he was underutilized to a degree at Ohio State. I think he could end up being a better pro than college player. So with that said, he's kind of your underrated guy. Let's jump right into the who was overrated at the tight end position. Uh, no, I hear a lot of love for Nick O'Leary, and Nick O'Leary was a really fun college player, and I don't know if you heard this, but he's Jack Nicholas's nephew. Oh, really? Oh, they should have but, mentioned that during the telecast. <laughs> yeah, you would think that they would, such a vital piece of information. Uh, O'Leary just, he does, I don't know where he wins the next level. Um, there was a guy last year out of Wisconsin uh, Jacob Pedersen that I was really high on, um, similar measure, measurables to O'Leary, uh, similar athlete to O'Leary, and Pedersen didn't get drafted. I don't believe he got drafted, and, and you know he didn't dress for games. And you know my question is seeing that, where does O'Leary win? And O'Leary, I'm not asking him to be an inline blocker. Uh, I'm not asking him to route or run routes regularly down the field because he's not very sudden. Uh, he's got good instincts to sit down in zones. Uh, he's a tough, hard-nosed player, but realistically, he's like a fullback slash H-back. And where do you value that? You know, I see some people talk about O'Leary uh, end of day two, round four on day three, and I just don't see it. You know, I gave him a, a round six value, um, but you're going to have to put him in positions where he's successful. He's not a guy that you can just throw in, all right, put your hand in the dirt, block defensive end, feel the edge for us. It's not the kind of player that he is. Well, and I completely understand the trepidation with Nick O'Leary. I, personally, I'm a little bit of a fan, and, and, and he's one of those guys, I, like I said, I totally understand. I mean, he's got physical shortcomings. How is he going to fit in? Probably limited upside. For me, he's just one of those guys I kind of throw out the measurables and I say, oh, it's a good football player. He's going to help a team. And it's not going to be, he's not going to be Jimmy Graham or Rob Gronkowski. He's not that type of player. I've kind of made the case that I think he's going to be the NFL player as an H-back that Tim Tebow probably should have been. Maybe use him like Rhett Ellison is used with the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, that, that's kind of the, the type of player I see him as. So personally, I would still take him in the mid-rounds, but I can completely understand why – why it's easy to question how he projects to the next level. Uh, but like I say, he's just one of my guys, I guess you could say I'm just a fan of. But since we kind of killed two birds with one stone on Hireman, uh, let me ask you one more question on tight end. Give us a sleeper. Give us a guy on day three, maybe even a late-round tight end. Who do you think has a chance to be a steal at the tight end position this year? I really like, uh, I think he's going by Busta, uh, Rory Anderson out of South Carolina. Uh, I really didn't know what to expect uh, putting him in. Uh, he, he had a t triceps tear, and he fought through a tricep, lingering triceps injury all throughout 2014. Uh, but he was fairly effective uh, working intermediate, middle of the field, uh, has a little bit of wiggle in open space, uh, weighed in at the combine at 6'5", 244. Uh, hands came in a little smaller than you like. They were under 9 inches, but... Um, and, and he did have some drops, so that was something that, that kind of manifested itself 
throughout his college tape. But he was a guy that I was really surprised with as far as you know, his open field movement skills. Um, he's adequate as an inline blocker. Uh, they they moved him at H back. They flexed him out a lot, and but he was really effective as a flex guy. Uh, so I think he's another guy that, as the league continues to trend towards you know, these bigger, more physical guys out in the slot, uh, working against linebackers, you know, you're trying to isolate those size, speed mismatches. Uh, Anderson's a guy that kind of stood out to me. He's a guy that I really like. All right, let's get into the trenches now, and uh, that's where I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the big uglies down the trenches. So let's start with offensive tackle. What's the, what's something that jumps out at you there? Uh, I'll be interested to see how many tackles go in the top 50. Uh, I have eight guys that on my board valued as top 50 players in this year's class. I think there's outstanding depth. Um, some guys get a lot of a lot of hype that I really don't necessarily see top 15 value in. A guy like Andrews P comes to mind. Um, TJ Clemmings got a little bit of first round buzz before the senior bowl and I don't really see that either, but, you know, those are two guys that are on the back half. They're 40 and 46 on my board, uh, so they're guys that I like. Uh, they're guys that I'm a fan of, but I just don't see the first-round value. But, you know, it comes down to supply and demand. You know, this is, in my opinion, a really deep class. Uh, how many teams opt to go that way, and when do they choose to go, and when does that big run start on all these talented offensive tackles? Yeah, this is kind of an interesting class, and, and, and I agree with you. I think the value is going to be in that second half of round one as opposed to the first half. We don't necessarily have that elite blindside protector this year, but I think there's going to be some good players in that you know 15 to 50 range. But let's dig a little bit on Andrews Pete because I'm kind of with you. I have him in the late 20s in my overall rankings, and I want to like him. He looks the part. He might have as much potential as any tackle in this class, but I got to say, watching him, I even went back to take another look just to kind of confirm my thoughts. Uh, it, it leaves, he leaves something to be desired. Uh, it, for, for my taste, he just gets pushed around. He's on the ground too much for my liking. I, I just have my bust alarm is going off with Andrews Pete. Did you kind of see some of those same things, or what were your concerns with him? Uh, it's funny that you said uh, he's on the ground. You know, I'm sitting here looking at his report right now that I had written up, and, you know, on the balance category, ends a notable number of plays on the ground. Uh, mm-hmm. His overall weight, uh, base and weight distribution is really good until he gets into contact. And once he fixes his, fan, his hands, it almost stops like he leaves his feet behind and he leans into blocks and folds at the waist. And as a result, yep. if, if defenders are able to pull off of that a little bit, you know, all that weight comes crashing forward. And that was something that showed up on a consistent basis. I watched one, two, three, four, five, five games of Pete. And I had notes about him ending plays on the ground and bending at the waist way too frequently for me to be able to get on board. You know, I understand massive frame. He's got that big, thick base that guys mm-hmm. like as talent evaluators. But, you know, go past the eyeball test and, and, and watch some of these flaws that he has. And I just don't know how easy it is going to be for teams to break those habits. Yeah, sounds like we're of the same mind on Andrus Pete. So yeah, he's a. I, I, I kind of said buyer beware with Andrus Pete. I could see that going one way or another, uh, and, and that might take care of the overrated part too. But uh, is, is there somebody else? Let's start with the overrated. Is there somebody else at offensive tackle that you think is being uh, maybe a little overrated or is going to come off the board earlier than he maybe should? Uh, 
I would have gone with Clemmings, but the, the, the buzz on Clemmings really died down quite a bit. Uh, yep. I'll go with Agwehi just because, you know, I saw a lot of inconsistencies. And he, uh, he just might be one of those guys where his muscle memory is so much better on the right side as it is on the left side. Uh, he looked more consistent and fluid with his movements on the right side in 2013 that he looked this year. It'll be interesting to see where he goes as far as with his medicals. But uh, really soft hands, hold his hands down low. Uh, and I, I don't understand why some guys have him propped up as, you know, before the injury they were talking about him being a top three tackle in the class. I just never really saw it. He's not physical. He doesn't stun with his hands, lets guys get into his body, and he ends up rolling up tight with his hands in nice and tight against his own chest while he's engaged. So he's letting guys into him. Uh, he's just a guy that I have more questions than I have answers for at this point. Well, how about on the flip side of the coin? Who's the underrated tackle in this class for you? I could go with a couple guys. I'm going to opt to go with Darrell Williams out of Oklahoma. Uh, he's solid, unspectacular, right tackle, uh, played across from Tyrus Thompson. Um, but you, you watch him play, he's clearly the better tackle there. Uh, the, the name that comes to mind, it's an analogy that I made a couple times, um, is Juwan James last year. You know, this was a guy that you know people said, day two, uh, plug-and-play right tackle, but he's just a right tackle. Uh, I think Daryl Williams, uh, he still has some poor habits as far as leaving his own feet behind, but his recovery balance, if his hands are locked on you, it is very rare to see somebody be able to disengage his hands without him reestablishing his base and, and recovering and continuing to put his body in between the defender and the ball. Uh, he's unspectacular, but I think he's a guy that, you know, teams might value. This is what he is. You know, he's an effective blocker. Put him on the right side and don't worry about it throughout the course of his first, potentially second contract if he's healthy. Uh, so he's a guy that I really liked. Well, and, and before we go on to another position, if I'm not mistaken, I think you have Jake Fisher of Oregon as your top-rated tackle, which is a, a little different from maybe the consensus out there. So I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about Fisher and what it is that you like about him. And, and he's a guy who definitely has some momentum right now. He's he's being talked about in that first-round conversation uh, following a, a really impressive performances during this pre-draft process and a good senior year. But talk a little bit about Fisher and what you like so much about him. Absolutely. I've I've found the past couple of years that I really trend towards the guys uh, with the plus movement skills. And you look at a guy like Fisher, uh, his foot quickness is outstanding. Uh, he plays effortlessly out in space as far as mirroring in pass protection. Uh, he, he utilizes his length well. He's almost got 34-inch arms, uh, over six feet tall. Uh, adequate anchor. He's not a guy that's going to root you off the ball like Lyle Collins or you know, Greg Robinson last year. That's just not the kind of player he is. He's more of a uh, controlled, I won't say finesse, because he loves burying guys in the ground when he gets the chance. Um, but he's not that overwhelming power tackle. Uh, I think he's very reliable in pass protection. And just his hand, the intricacy of his handwork really impressed me. Uh, he'll let uh, defenders show their hands, and he gives a real violent club down uh, with his forearm and, and clears those hands, and he loves to bury guys face first into the dirt, and he sits on top of them. Uh, he plays with a little bit of a nasty streak. He's tenacious as a blocker. 
uh, works well out onto the second level. Um, the the question for him, as seems to be with all offensive tackles that kind of run that finesse route, is you know, just functional strength. So I didn't see an overwhelming amount of issues with functional strength. I think his strength is adequate. You know, he can hold at the point of attack, uh, a little bit more of a zone blocker than a, a gap blocker. But, you know, I just think with his movement skills and some of the technique that he shows, I think he's an outstanding pass protector. With Fisher, there's a little bit of debate about his position. Is he a left tackle, right tackle, guard? Do you have a conviction one direction or the other? Uh, with him... When in doubt, I would play him at tackle first. Um, and if it doesn't work out, you can always move him. You can always kick him inside. Uh, but he has left tackle movement skills. So I'm putting him at left tackle to start. If it doesn't work out, kick him inside the left guard. You know, Let him be that traditional pulling guard that plays well on the second level and pulls out in front on the perimeter and you know, kind of like what happened with Kyle Long. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Kyle Long played – tackle in college and was a, a guard convert and um I, I just think give him the benefit of the doubt let him prove that he can't play it before you take away his opportunity to play it that's kind of my philosophy too always give him a chance at the the more uh valuable position and, and if, if not you always have a, a good time b in place uh let's kind of lump the interior offensive linemen together the guards and the centers uh what kind of stands out for you amongst those interior blockers uh, I think I, I we just got done saying give a guy the benefit of the doubt, and here I am saying that Brandon Scherf, to me, uh, is a guard. Uh, so a little bit of irony for you. <laughs> but I think Scherf, you know, he's very much that tight power blocker. He's a guy that I think would be better served working inside. Uh, you can have him play tackle and have him be uh, above average to good or you can put him inside a guard and let him be great. And it's the same thing that some folks said last year with Zach Martin. And I think there's a very good parallel between those two as far as, you know, the upside of moving Scherf inside to what you saw from Zach Martin. I'm not saying Scherf's going to come into the league and be an all pro or anything like that. But I just think, you know, he doesn't mirror quite as well as some of the other movement guys do like Jake Fisher. So, uh, I'm putting him at guard in a pinch. Somebody gets hurt, sure, you can kick him out there. Uh, but Scherf, to me, stands out as a guy that, you know, he's clear-cut number one interior uh, offensive lineman, guard and center on the board. Um, and that's where I would put him to at least start. Yeah, and I have him as my number one offensive tackle per kind of what we just talked about, where given the benefit of the doubt. Uh, so I, I'm going to look him at tackle, but I, I could very well see him being an outstanding guard as well. And I think one aspect when, with, with Sheriff is everyone kind of focuses on the physical tools, the feet, but I think Brandon Sheriff, the way he plays, his demeanor, his tenacity, probably more suited to guard, to play in that phone booth. And, um, and, and I think maybe sometimes that, that's an aspect of, of the offensive line or even the defensive line to a degree where we kind of undervalue or we don't take into consideration as much as we should, the personality, the type of play style. And I think with Sheriff, he's just so nasty. He's so physical. He's got that killer instinct. Uh, I can very easily see why people would look at him as a guard. Uh, do you kind of factor that in? Do you, do you, do you kind of 
factor in their play styles when you're doing their grades and when you're determining positions? Because, like I say, I think that's a, an area that people don't really focus on, but I, I think that it's, it's a part of the evaluation. I think how a guy plays is an important part. Absolutely. And you look at what ended up happening with uh, Mike Robinson last year. You know, he was just tenacious, blow you off the ball, pick you up and carry you out of bounds until the whistle type run blocker. And Scherf has some of those same exact plays. Once he gets some forward momentum rolling on you and he rolls his hips through contact, uh, you're not stopping unless you're on the ground. Um, and Rams ended up opting to go with Robinson at least to start the year uh, inside, get him plugging in at, at left tackle, get him some playing experience. And then, you know, if you feel so compelled, you can try him outside. Uh, and I think that can be a very similar uh, career path early on for sure and you know I wouldn't have any problem with you know you want to get him some playing time and try him on the outside hey that's fine but I think as you said just the mentality and the physicality that he plays with you know getting those hands fit locked and and, and he really likes to just run guys off the ball uh, much better suited to being in tight where there's less room for repercussions if he misses with his punch all right, let's get your overrated and underrated prospect amongst those interior blockers. Uh, if I'm going to go with underrated, I'll go with Andy Gallick, the center out of Boston College. Uh, he was really fun for me to watch. Uh, I actually have him as my top center uh, over Cameron Irving out of Florida State. Um, Gallick isn't necessarily a box checker in length or athleticism but he's just very, very good and very, very polished as a blocker. Uh, great understanding of gap integrity and, and how to win and you know correct angles, working out onto the second level to, to seal off backside flow. And you know, he's an adequate mover. He moves pretty well laterally in the pocket to help seal off those inside gaps. And he's another guy that plays with that mean, nasty, tenacious um, aggressiveness to his game that allows him to just kind of bully guys at times. So he's a guy that stands out to me. Um, if I'm going overrated, I'll go with Reese Dismukes out of Auburn. Uh, I really was not impressed all that much with his game. Um, he's a strong open field athlete, but the physicality that he plays with just, you know, it, it didn't flash out at me. It didn't say this is a guy that you can plug immediately and play with. He's almost almost a little bit more of a project than I think people uh suggest that he will be. Um, I'll be interested to see where he lands. Uh, obviously, with his experience at Auburn, very much more of a run-blocking, work-out-in-space, work-on-the-second-level type of blocker. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how he transitions um, when he's asked to either pass-protect 30, 40 times a game or whether he's playing in a different kind of scheme based off of what uh, – was run at Auburn the last couple of seasons. Well, let's move along to the defensive line, and, and we'll start with uh, the edge guys, the defensive ends, the pass rushers. And, and to me, I'm kind of looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this because I think this is an area where there, there may not even be a consensus this year. Uh, I think for me, Dante Fowler is getting the edge, and, and, and is, is, if there is a consensus, it's probably him as the top guy. But I think that's partly because he's maybe the safest of that top group, but I think they all have, all the rest 
whether it be uh, Vic Beasley, whether it be Randy Gregory, whether it be Shane Ray, um, even Bud Dupree to, to a, maybe a lesser extent, but potentially fatal flaws. And, and let's start with Fowler because I, I noticed that you aren't as quite as high on him as many – just like me. Um, and I like Dante Fowler. I think he's a good player, and, and I think he's clearly the safest option of the bunch. I just I just don't see an impact player. I think he does everything pretty well. He checks all the boxes in terms of the physical tools and tangibles. I just didn't see him take over games. I, I kind of compare him. I think he's going to be a Derek Morgan-type player in the NFL. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, he, he just he has a higher ceiling but also a higher floor than some of the other guys. So, uh, and, and I made the case that I don't think there's that much of a difference between Fowler and Dupree, and, and you're going to be able to get Bud Dupree pro- probably 10 picks, maybe even more, more later on draft day value-wise. I'd rather have Dupree at, in the early teens than, say, Fowler in the top three overall. So, so let's start there with, with maybe that top group of edge rushers and, and your kind of thoughts. Well, I, I totally agree with you as far as Fowler. Um, you know, he his hands are the analogy that was made. I was talking to a couple of uh, folks last week, and the analogy that was made was his hands are more active than they are effective. Uh, his he he plays a million miles an hour. You know, he's always moving. He's always trying to uh, disengage from blocks. But you know, how effective is he getting rid of blocks? You know, how frequently does he attack at the wrist or attack at the elbow on an initial punch? Um, he's once his hands are, once blockers' hands are on, uh, it's kind of hit or miss. His his plus plays out of those scenarios frequently are just hustle high motor plays. Um, and I have a, a ton of respect for a guy that goes out there and plays his uh, 80th snap as hard as he plays his hundred or his first snap. And yep. that's the kind of player that Fowler is. You know, he's a fun player to watch. Uh, he's got a little bit of quick pitch to him. Uh, not the most twitchy guy in the class. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I, I don't see uh, tremendous lateral movement skills. I didn't see a guy that uh, frequently utilized secondary pass rush counters. So I just think there's a little bit more room for growth, which is ironic because he said he's the safest. Um, I agree that, you know, the the description that I have in his summary is base 4-3 defensive end. And that's where he's going to be most effective. He's not that premium premier pass rusher. He has some twitch. He can time up snap counts. Um, but he's not that potential game changer that I think some people uh, insinuate that he is or, or think that he can be. Uh, I, I like Fowler. I just am not crazy about Fowler, and I certainly wouldn't take Fowler in the top five or the top ten. And I guess the best way for me to distill it is if it's it's just that it's I'm the same way. It's not that I don't like him. I just don't like him at number three overall. If I'm if if I'm at that type of premium pick, I want to kind of swing for the fences. I want to try to get a difference maker. And I just don't know. I, I certainly didn't see Fowler be a difference make on tape difference maker on tape consistently enough. But uh, talk a little bit about Bud Dupree because uh, you're significantly higher him. I believe you have him as one of your top rate players in the entire draft. You're a big fan. And, and, and I like Dupre as well. And like I said, value-wise, I'd rather get Dupre 10 picks later than because I, I don't think there's that much of a difference, if at all, between he and Fowler. I think there are a lot of similar similarities between the two. And if 
anything, I think Dupre might have a little more upside because I think he was underutilized in that scheme, the way they moved him around so much. And I don't know that he was ever really able to master one thing or really pin his ears back and, and be that dynamic player that I think he's capable of being. So talk a little bit about Dupre since I think it's clear you are a, a fan of his. No, I think you hit it right on the head as far as, you know, the upside is there uh, a lot more. He's longer than Fowler. Uh, he's more explosive than Fowler. Uh, he's a better mover in space than Fowler. Uh, it's just what was he asked to do. And you can tell he doesn't necessarily trust himself and his ability to turn the corner as a pass rusher. Once he gets hit to hip, uh, he has the potential to improve the, the pressure that he's applying to an offensive tackle's outside shoulder and turn those shoulders and get tight and be able to press the quarterback at, at the top of the pocket. Um, all the skill sets that you're possibly looking for, whether it's as a 4-3 defensive end or a 3-4 outside linebacker, uh, he's got uh, excellent first-step explosiveness. Um, and his his hand technique was something that stood out to me in 2014 as something that improved uh, by a noticeable margin. You look at him in 2013, a lot of his splash plays were free runs, uh, wide angles off the, the far side of the line of scrimmage, just crashing down. Um, he's a lot more effective. There's still room for growth, but there's uh, a lot more efficiency in 2014 tape, uh, establishing separation, utilizing the length that he has, uh, and he's such a, a flexible, bendable player that he can bend at the knees, drop the hips, and anchor at the line of scrimmage. Um, he, he's fairly physical as far as you know, pulling offensive blockers off of their pass set. Uh, once he establishes his hand, you know, he's capable of utilizing a little bit of power as well. Uh, worked a lot of push-pull, uh, a handover swat, and rip moves were the, the three pass rush moves that I noted that he – is consistently effective utilizing as a pass rusher. And that's more versatility than you can get out of you know, almost all the other rushers in the class. Uh, and that's sad to say, but, you know, you look at all the pass rushers in the class outside of maybe Vic Beasley and going down the list, you know, maybe Randy Gregory uh, and then Nate Orchard are guys that come to mind as guys that flash consistent pass rush counters um more so than the three counters that I saw Dupree that he's at least able to effectively utilize. And you mentioned with Dante Fowler, you got him as kind of a 4-3 defensive end. How about Dupree? Do you see a similar role? Uh, do you think he's better suited for D-end, outside linebacker, a certain scheme? Where, where do you think his best fit is? I think his best fit is probably as a 3-4 outside linebacker, uh, just because he has those movement skills out in space. Uh, and by putting him outside linebacker, standing up in a two-point, you're allowing him to widen out his angles a little bit better so he has a little bit more consistent outside leverage, keep that outside arm free and filter runs back inside. Um, you know, his hands are capable of, of stacking blocks and being able to disengage, but I think it's just easier for him with how big and fast that he is just to have him a couple further steps outside uh, and if they're trying to run up inside him, he has the speed to close it down. And if they try and pass, press the boundary, he's got the movement skills and the flexibility to open up his hips and get towards the sideline as well. Well, let me get your your, your relatively quick thoughts on the other big 
big-name pass rushers are going to come off the board in the top half of the first round, most likely. Uh, Vic Beasley from Clemson, Randy Gregory from Nebraska, and, and then Shane Ray from Missouri. And, and I guess specifically, uh, I, I'm interested to hear where you pos- project them position-wise as well. well I'll start with Beasley. Uh, Beasley's my number two edge rusher. I have him 19th on my board. I like Vic Beasley quite a bit. Uh, I think ultimately his best position is as an off-ball will linebacker. Uh, in a 4-3 defensive front. Uh, If you can minimize the amount of traffic that he's playing in, I think the the better served he's going to be and the more productive he's going to be for you. Um, If we're talking about Randy Gregory, uh, obviously he has outstanding length. Uh, There's questions about his weight. They said he came in after the the season at at 218 and had to bulk up to 231 or whatever it was. uh, What stood out to me with Gregory is he has length, he plays with length, and he plays with surprising toughness at the line of scrimmage just to anchor and hold the point of attack. Now, that's not something you would expect to see out of a guy that's 230, 240, wherever he is. He's long, he's lean, he has room to grow. Uh, twitchy player, uh, consistency as far as, you know, there were some times when he was asked strictly to uh, read blocks, so his snap anticipation was not as consistent as it would be. Uh, some people made a big deal out of how regularly he got off the ball and being the last guy to move and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I think he has a very good upside. But at the same time, you kind of have to be leery about a guy with such a small frame. Do you want to put him at 4-3 end? I don't think so. I think he's another guy that's best served working out in space. And, and Shane Ray's a tough one for me. Um, I'm not particularly a big fan. I've got him as my 13th rated Edge rusher, uh, wins with speed, um, patient, but you know, if we're being honest, he bends about as well as a two-by-four. Um, <laughs> not a lot of flexibility there. His ability to turn the corner um, is not great. You know, He's capable of dipping the shoulder, but just you know, he, he's fairly linear with his movement skills, as evidenced by uh, some of the testing numbers that he put out. I know there were some, some questions of maybe his injury having an effect on, on those testing numbers as well. Um, but he's not long. Um, he's uh, very much – I'm very much leery of the Missouri guys just because the way that they coach their defense, uh, their edge players, whether it was Michael Sam last year, Coney Ely last year, uh, Shane Ray this year, uh, Marcus Golden this year, it's just get in the backfield, create penetration, and, and disrupt plays in the backfield. And for every one play that you have a good play with that – there's two or three plays where you've run yourself right out of the play because they're running off tackle and they're running right up inside you. So I don't know how well he's going to be able to alter that mentality right away and hold gap integrity and play along the line of scrimmage. Um, So he's a really tough guy for me to place. I think just with his size, uh, 245, um, yeah, I'm I'm not sure where I'd put Shane Ray, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think he's an interesting guy, and I think he might slide in the draft. I wouldn't be shocked if he was still available somewhere in the 20s. And, you know, a lot was made when at his pro day, he the, the, some of the, the numbers with his testing weren't, weren't great. But I really wasn't surprised. I think it was pretty clear on tape that, that he was very tight and uncomfortable in space working in reverse. Now, he has, when it comes to getting off the ball, I mean, he's as good as anybody not named Vic Beasley in this class. Uh, he has a great first step. But 
what is he? Is, is he if, is he a four three defensive end only? Because I mean that was one of the big knocks on Michael Sam out of that same program. Now it's not to that degree. Shane Ray ran much better than Michael Sam uh, in, in a number of reasons, but he has some of those same knocks Michael Sam has. Where all right, so if he can't play outside linebacker, he's just a four three defensive end. Can he be in a fourth? Can he be in every down four three defensive end, or is he a situational pass rusher? Because if that's the case, how early are you willing to invest on a guy like that? So I. I'm with you on Shane Ray. I still think he goes in the first round, but I wouldn't be shocked if he slid a little bit. And and like I said, I wasn't I wasn't surprised by the the, the, the disappointing workout results because I, I think it was pretty evident when you watched him on film. Uh, but let's uh, get one overrated and underrated player from you at defensive end, and you can include those five technique type guys in there too if you'd like. Okay, uh, if I'm gonna go overrated, I'm gonna go with Mario Edwards Jr. Uh, out of Florida State, just because he's a mega that I'm not quite sure what he is, you know, uh, where he weighed at the end of 2013, uh, where he started the beginning of 2014, pushing 300 pounds, uh, comes into the off-season circuit, and uh, he, he's somewhere in the middle as far as his weight. Um, I just really didn't see a whole lot of burst explosiveness. He's very much a power player. Um and I know the bugs has kind of by, died down on Edwards, um, but I, I wouldn't take Edwards until day three, to be honest. Just I, I don't know what I'm getting as far as where he thinks he should play, where he wants to play, uh, where he's best suited to play, because quite frankly, he was not all that productive and did not flash all that much, no matter where he played. Uh, he strikes me as a 4-3 base end, uh, two-down player. You let him set the edge against the run, and that's about it. So, you know, I, I would not necessarily covet a guy like Mario Edwards. Uh, if we're talking underrated guy, and I know his name has gotten hot a bit recently, but uh, if I get this right, I'm going to thank John Owning from Football Insiders. Owamogbe Adigizua from UCLA. Um, outstanding tape. He, uh, he's probably one of the, the five players that, if you ask me, who did you have the most fun watching in the 2015 class, uh, his name's on it. Uh, I, I hope and I pray his medicals come back clean and his hip is not a long-term issue. He missed all 2013 with a hip injury, um, but he, he's very explosive inside of his frame. He doesn't bend well. He struggles to lean and finish plays in the backfield sometimes, uh, but just the power that he carries. And, you know, he's playing out of position. UCLA played him at five-tech frequently. Um, so he's used to winning with power. Uh, he's a guy that you can potentially kick inside on uh, third down and long pass rushes to get a little bit more speed on the perimeter. So I think he's a three down player. Another guy that strikes me uh, as a four, three base end strong side, just let him use his power, power in his hands to, to jolt offensive tackles and really reestablish the line of scrimmage in the backfield and he's got some movement skills and some explosiveness to be able to get some penetration and make some plays for you there as well. I'm right there with you, Diggy Zua. He was one of my first prospect crushes uh, early in the season. I'm a big fan. Like you said, the, the one big question mark is the medicals, the, the health. But if that checks out, boy, he's a heck of a player. Uh, let's kick on the inside. Let's talk some defensive tackles. And, and what's the storyline there to you that, that kind of intrigues you? I'll be interested to see where after Leonard Williams these tackles start getting drafted. Um, you, know, you hear the name Danny Shelton. You know, I'll get into Danny Shelton a little bit later, but um, 
Shelton. You got guys like Shelton, Eddie Goldman, Michael Bennett, Jordan Phillips, Malcolm Brown, uh, Carl Davis. These are all really talented guys in their own right. Um, where do you value these guys? And some of it's going to come down to scheme fit. Uh, you're not going to value a guy like Bennett the same. You're going to value a guy like Goldman because uh, one's ideally a one tech and a four three, and the other's a three tech and a four three. And, you know, you, you you put value on um, your pressure players, your pass rushers. I think so. I think some teams are going to. It'll be interesting to see where the value ends up lying inside of the the first round and the first half of the second round with these off uh, defensive tackles, just because I think there's a really good amount of depth in the class as far as interior defensive linemen, uh, more so than it's given credit for. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. I think the value at the defensive tackle position is probably somewhere in that maybe 20 to 40 range, but but let's say you're a team in the middle of the first round, you're looking for a defensive tackle. Yeah, that might be the, a little too high, but are they going to be there by the time your next pick is on the clock in the middle of round two? You're kind of in no man's land if you're in the middle of the first round looking for a defensive tackle. Is there somebody that you'd be willing to take, let's, let's just say 15 overall, just to throw a number out there kind of right in the middle of the first round uh and is there somebody you'd be willing to take that early or would you hold your breath and hope somebody fell to you in round two because it's kind of a tough spot for teams in that range if they can't trade down uh well my number two defensive tackle is eddie goldman i really like him but you know where are you drafting a guy that's not going to give you a whole lot of production as a pass rusher uh his ability to eat blocks on the inside play with power collapse in one-on-one situations is outstanding. I have him as 20th on my board. Uh, if I'm running a 4-3 defense and I need uh, an interior defensive lineman uh, to maybe line up in that one tech, uh, I wouldn't have a problem taking him right in that range. Um, now, if I needed a pressure player like Michael Bennett, uh, we're talking maybe fringe first round, uh, very beginning of round two seems like it, it's a, where the value lines up uh, just because he's a pressure player, but he's also um, a little bit more inconsistent with his results. He really turned it on down the stretch in 2014, but you know, there's also plays where he's getting run off the ball. He's getting washed down the line of scrimmage, so he's a little bit more boom or bust. Um, but Goldman's a guy that stands out to me is my number two, um, Carl Davis is the other one. He's a little bit more versatile. Uh, he can play five tech. He can play three tech. He can play one tech. So he can move around quite a bit. So if a team values some versatility, maybe you see Davis get a little bit more oomph in his draft stock. Let me ask you quickly about Carl Davis, because he's a player who's, uh, it's a little bit uh, of a tough evaluation simply because he almost looked like a different type of player at the senior bowl and on the all-star circuit than he was at Iowa I think he showed a lot more penetration and pass rush ability. Do you just attribute to that to Iowa not allowing him or asking him to do that? Or, or, or how did you, how do you kind of uh, reconcile that in your mind where you saw kind of one player at Iowa and you kind of saw another player to a certain degree at the Senior Bowl? And, and both good players. There's nothing wrong with the player he was at Iowa, but just kind of showed a different type of skill set at the Senior Bowl than I think we were maybe expecting. Yeah, I think some of it comes down to what he was asked to do at, at Iowa. You know, a lot of his plus plays came at a tilted one-tech uh, on the inside, so he was eating a lot of gaps. He was, you know, engaging either the center or an offensive guard, trying to create penetration into the backfield. And, you know, you saw him doing a lot of two-gapping. 
where he's establishing and stacking a block, and then he's reading the play and getting off the ball. Whereas when you get him involved as uh, a penetration player, you let him press into the backfield, you let him work all around, you let him fire off the ball, uh, he's got the, the twitchiness to be able to pull that off. Uh, fairly explosive player. in a 33-inch vert, uh, one seven three ten 10-yard split. Those are both above average in comparison to defensive tackles across the board uh, over the last 10 or 11 years at the Combine. And he did that at 321. So you know, this is a guy that has a pretty good combination of size and explosiveness. He's got 34-and-a-half-inch arms, so you know he has great length. He showed the ability to two-gap at Iowa, and then he comes into the Senior Bowl, and he shows the ability to, to get after it as a pass rusher as well. So I just think that versatility really has a chance for him to really increase his stock once teams are looking to pull the trigger. All right, let's get one overrated and one underrated player from you at D-Tackle. All right, if we're going overrated, I'm going to go with Danny Shelton. And... uh you know, I, I see all the top 15 mocks for Shelton, and I just don't I don't see it. You know, you, you see the productiveness that he had as a, a pass rusher with, you know, what, whatever it was, eight sacks this year and six of them a game against Hawaii, Eastern Washington, and uh, somebody else. So um, it, I'm throwing out the, the sack credit that, that he's getting there just because he was he was running over Eastern Washington. I mean, he was just like a wrecking ball coming through a paper mache wall. Um, Shelton, to me, his problem is he's a one tech that tries to play like a three tech. So I think he needs some mental reconditioning as far as when he sits down and eats blocks and he's actively trying to eat blocks and hold the point of attack, he's very, very good. But too frequently you'll see him get into a block and he'll try and swim over the top of it, and he'll concede his chest because he's not a very flexible player. The reason why he plays with leverage is because he's under 6'2". So he'll concede his chest, he gives up a large blocking surface, and he's driven off the ball. You know, I don't care if you're 360 or whatever he was when he apparently started the season. That was the rumored weight that he was playing at. And that's a whole other can of worms is, you know, if a guy's coming into a season at 360, can you rely on him to stay at weight? Can you rely on him to stay at a consistent playing Wait, but he, he, he just really – go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to just follow quickly on Shelton. Is it a case where you're just not as high on him, or do you think he he's maybe overrated uh, just uh, in the national consciousness? Do you think he's still going to go maybe in the top 10, 15 overall, or, or do you think he might slide in the draft? It would not surprise me if he was still a top 15 selection you know, everybody that, that has been around him has said he has a very positive, infectious personality. He's a likable guy, um, loves the game of football, and that's great. And that's that's what people look for. So you, you're seeing, you know, high production. So I think he has an increased media uh, exposure just because of how disruptive he was. Uh, he got, I believe he had eight sacks this year. He had eight of 11 and a half sacks were this year. Uh, he just played astronomically well this year. Uh, so I think he's a hot hand. Um, but I can say for certain that, no, I am not particularly as high on him as many people are just because I think there's some mental reconditioning that's going to need to be done there for him to reach his full potential. If I'm going right. underrated, I'll go Bobby Richardson out of Indiana. Just wrote a piece on him for draft breakdown. 
Uh, you can find it on the, the article section. Uh, ultimately, think he's a penetration three-tech, has some length. Uh, if you want to play him in a three-man front on at a five-technique, um, quick, bendable, instinctive guy, uh, 80% of what you'll get with Aaron Donald, Bobby Richardson. All right, excellent. Yeah, he's a good football player. I agree with you on that one, too. All right, let's move on to outside linebacker, and this is another one of those kind of subjective positions, and, and, and some of the guys we talked about at defensive end might end up being outside linebackers, So, um, but but give us a storyline at that outside linebacker that kind of jumps out at you, and, and one thing I noticed, too, I think six of my top eight ranked outside linebackers in this class play defensive end in college, so it's kind of, a, I think, a sign of the times the way schemes are, are shifting and, and you're there's it's just, it just doesn't seem at least amongst the top rated linebackers in this class there's not too many of them that 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 are of the the prototypical outside linebacker that we've come to think of they're more of the new age edge hybrid types absolutely and when i did my evaluations i i kind of clumped them all together in the edge class um it was just easier for me for the sake of you know do you make defensive ends and then put guys in, in the same rankings later on. Um, if we're talking outside linebackers that aren't pressure players, like off the ball kind of guys, uh, I'm interested to see where Shaq Thompson and Paul Dawson end up falling just because for very different reasons, uh, you're not quite sure what you're getting. Dawson has questions about his commitment and, and his um, promptness as far as showing up for meetings and that kind of thing. And then obviously the well-documented, like his combine was all-time awful bad. Um, Shaq Thompson, a little bit of a tweener, a lightweight guy. He was under 225 leave at the combine, uh, came in 228, I'm sorry. Uh, so six foot, 228. Uh, what is he? You know, some people want to move into safety. Uh, I think that's uh, you're making a bigger project for yourself than you have to. Um, whereas, you know, you, you play him as a nickel guy, you know, the way that the league's kind of trending now, you can get away with playing him, uh, kind of as a, a, a will on, on early downs and let him be a, a pass coverage guy. Cause he's got the movement skills to be able to pull it off. But um, those are two guys where I'm really interested to see what the league evaluation is on them, just because, uh, there's some unanswered questions on both. Have you, Scott? Oh, yep. Sorry about that. Um, give, give us an overrated and underrated off the ball linebacker, um, and I think we'll probably talk about the inside linebackers a little bit more. And, and, and some of these guys could be viewed at both positions, but uh, I'm going to save a couple of my guys I wanted to ask you about for the inside linebacker discussion. So, so give us an overrated and underrated. Uh, if we're talking off ball outside linebackers. Um, a guy that I really like is uh, Neville Hewitt out of Marshall. Uh, has the potential to play middle linebacker, uh, outside linebacker, frequently at Marshall. Um, very much an under-the-radar kind of guy, but I have him as a day-two player. He's very, 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 very good. Uh, instinctive, uh, physical tackler, plays well above his size. Uh, he came in in his pro day at 6'1", 231. 
explosive player, uh, 4'6", 5'40", 37-inch vert, uh, just short of 10 inches on his broad jump. Uh, and it shows up on film. You know, once he sees the play and sticks his foot in the ground and he goes out of his transitions, out of his run read and makes a break on the ball, very quick to shoot gaps, get into the backfield, um, hits with some power, more power than he should at 231. Uh, Juco transfer. Uh, I think he, I hope he's a name that gets some recognition and gets his name called because I think he has the potential to be very, very, very good player. Um, if we're talking overrated, I'll go Quan Alexander. Uh, out of LSU, he's just a guy I didn't see it with. Uh, slow to process some plays, um, not very quick to transition out of a read and diagnose a play, uh, not the surest of tacklers either. So uh, I think he has a little bit of work to do as far as developing himself into the player that he can be because he has very good uh, natural athleticism, but I don't see – uh, anywhere near a finished product there. All right, let's talk about inside linebackers. And some of these guys we're going to talk about could project inside or outside, as I alluded to. But uh, on average, I think over the last nine years, there's been just under five inside linebackers selected in the top three rounds. This year, I think you could see five go in the top 50, maybe. Uh, my top five are Denzel Perriman from Miami, Benardrick McKinney from Mississippi State, Paul Dawson from TCU, Stephon Anthony from Clemson, and then Eric Kendricks from UCLA. And And I think this is another position where I don't know that we're going to have a consensus on draft day. It might just come down to what type of player the teams are looking for. Uh, I don't know that there's a huge difference maybe in their value or grades, uh, but I, I really like this inside linebacker class. Not only do you have the, the, the quality in the early rounds, but you have the depth. I think middle rounds, there's going to be some intriguing players. Late rounds, there's guys I like. I think inside linebacker is probably one of my personal favorite positions of this draft in terms of the depth, but uh, what's like the storyline that kind of jumps out to you at that position? Uh, I'll be interested to see where Stephon Anthony lands. Uh, he's not my top inside linebacker, uh, but, you know, from everything that you read, he, he tested a lot better than people anticipated that he was going to at the Combine. Uh, scouts had scouts going back to tape. Uh, hear a lot of people talk about, you know, misstep, false steps and, and poor angles. Um, but I thought he was fairly impressive. I, I really enjoyed him. Um, so I'm going to be interested to see, you know, you get a lot of talk uh, from the the major media guys as an early round two guy, uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see him end up slipping into the back end of round one. So I'm I'm going to have a close eye on Anthony and when he gets his name called. Yep, I think that's a salient point. I think he's got a chance to to maybe be the first inside linebacker off the board, maybe even back end of round one. I know the New Orleans Saints have shown a lot of interest in him, and of course they have number 31 overall now from the Seahawks uh, as a byproduct of that Jimmy Graham trade. So I think that could be a landing spot for him. And it's one of those situations where I think three, four months ago, we might have even scoffed if somebody said, oh, Stephon Anthony is going to be the first inside linebacker off the board, but he's just been uh, he's just been a He's been just acing every part of the pre-draft process. It seems like. All right, let's talk. And, and uh, uh, how about? I know you had Eric Kendricks too. You had him rated as an off-the-ball linebacker. Did you, did you see him strictly outside, or you think he can play inside as well? I, I would try him inside. Uh, he's got enough quick twitch. He's got enough instinctiveness uh, that that he can read plays and work sideline to sideline. I know with his stature. Uh, it's less than ideal for working as a mic, but 
you know, he filters his way through traffic fairly well, whether it's utilizing that compact frame uh, to get up underneath some pads and just kind of plug up a hole by engaging a blocker in the hole, uh, or he does have the short area movement skills and, and lateral agility to uh, face up a blocker and then cut just before contact uh, as the ball is trying to be run off that blocker's hip and make plays. So uh, he's got the ability to go sideline to sideline. He's got great instincts. He's got uh, the ability to cover and pass protection. Uh, I would give him a shot as a Mike because I think Kendricks is outstanding. He's another one of my favorites from this class. All right, let's wrap up at inside linebacker with an overrated and underrated prospect from you. I get a lot of, uh, I see a lot of love, I should say, for Hayes Pillard uh, out of USC. And he's another guy for me that I I just don't get it. Uh, A lot of flat-footed reads. Uh, He's a fairly decent athlete as far as working in space and, and being out in space as a pass protector. Um, But he's not, very physical, uh, does not engage blocks well, does not get off blocks well at all. And he just is, he just strikes me as the kind of linebacker that waits to see a play develop and see the, the exchange before he goes towards the ball. Uh, so that's a guy that stands out to me that I have some concerns with. And if I'm going to talk about an underrated guy, I'll go with Armalo Herrera out of Georgia. Uh, One dimensional player. I think he's at best, probably a two-down linebacker. I have him valued in round four. Uh, but in a 3-4 defense where you've got him as the strong side linebacker where he's just plugging gaps and charging downhill and stuffing runs and forcing him to bounce out to the outside or cut back against the grain uh, by engaging blockers in the hole, I think he has a lot of value. Uh, physically, he's fairly effective as a form tackler when he's able to come to balance and square up on ball carriers. Um he tested a little bit better than I was expecting. Uh, he's not by any means a plus mover, uh, fairly stiff, but uh, his physicality is what stands out to me. It's something that a 3-4 team could certainly put to good use uh, as a run defender. All right, let's move into the secondary to cornerback. And uh, I'm going to kick this one off because this is a question I'm interested to hear your perspective on, too. Uh, I think it's pretty clear Trey Waynes from Michigan State is going to be the first corner off off the board, but who's going to be the number two corner? And this is kind of a question I've struggled with, uh, and I've gone back and forth and, and, and kind of shuffled my rankings. And I think there's probably four or five guys who are in the conversation. And I don't know that even when draft day rolls around that we're going to have a, a clear-cut answer or a clear-cut consensus. Uh, ultimately, I went with Jalen Collins from LSU as my number two, and he's inexperienced, he's very raw, but he's got all the tools. I, I think his major flaws can be fit, are fixable with coaching and experience, so that's why I gave him the slight edge. I went with Quentin Rollins from Miami of Ohio number as my number three corner, who I'm a huge fan of. He's one, probably my favorite player in this entire draft, regardless of position. Uh, P.J. Williams from Florida State, I'm a big fan of, and I, I could make an argument for him as my number two corner, to be honest. Um, I, I think the film on P.J. Williams is pretty impressive, and then, of course, you have Marcus Peters from Washington, who's, whose status is kind of clouded by the uh, off-the-field concerns, and then Kevin Johnson from Wake Forest, who I personally think is a little overrated. I'm not quite as high on him as some, but I think that's the kind of group 
kind of jockeying for position uh, to be that second, third, fourth, fifth corner off the board. And we're talking a lot of money. If you're the second corner, you're probably coming off the board in the 20s. If you're the sixth corner, you might be coming off the board in the 40s. So there's a lot of dollars and cents on the line there for these guys. So I'm really interested to see your kind of thoughts on that, that second tier of corners in this class. Well, I think it's really interesting to hear your outlook on the position because, you know, mine's like the other side of the coin. Uh, You mentioned Rollins and uh, Collins as two guys that stood out to you as corners two and three. Um, Obviously, it's well documented that Rollins is a a one-year player. Uh, As you mentioned, Collins was very raw. Uh, Those kind of guys scare me uh, personally. Uh, You look at what happened with, uh, Cleveland last year when they opted to go with um, the corner out of Oklahoma State, and he almost didn't even play. Um, so if it's me and I'm looking to select the number two corner off the board, uh, I want a guy that I know can play right away. Uh, the big thing for me is that early investments, uh, Not you're not just factoring long-term potential, but you're also lo- factoring in uh, the immediate returns that you're getting for your investment. Uh, A couple guys that stand out to me, Um, Marcus Peters, obviously, you've already mentioned. Uh, I think he'll be either corner one or corner two uh, just because guys with his talent, you know, usually teams will give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, It's nothing too extreme. You know, you just need to make sure he's a fit for your culture and a fit for your locker room. Uh, I think some team uh, will find that or be willing to take the risk on that uh, sometime in the first round. Uh, two other names that you didn't mention that I have up inside my top five corners were Alex Carter out of Stanford and Eric Rowe, who could be potentially portrayed as a safety and seen as a safety, um, are, are two guys that I'm fairly high on. Uh, both are physical guys. Uh, Rowe played at safety until transitioning to a corner for this season, uh, effective as a press guy, uh, physical uh, his ball skills are outstanding, obviously, with the time that he spent at free safety. Um, I was surprised how efficient he was as a press corner uh, working in 2014 with it being his first exposure to it. Uh, Carter is another press corner physical guy, and his his confidence and patience on the snap is outstanding where – you, know, you watch him, and you know usually that wide receiver gives that false outside step and and the head fake, and uh, the the corner jumps outside and flips open his hips, and then concedes the inside free release. Carter has a lot of confidence in his technique and his feet uh, to stay patient, stay at the line of scrimmage, and allow the receiver to come to him before he reroutes him and gets him out of the coverage the way that he wants him to go. Um, doesn't have outstanding long speed, uh, but he has enough length. Uh, at six foot on the dot, uh, 32 plus inch arms to affect throws from the trail position where, you know, he gets into your hip pocket, you have to be accurate passing over the top. And if he's got a safety over the top and he's able to be very physical at the line of scrimmage, I think he holds a lot of value. So those are two guys that stand out to me as guys that I really like. And I feel fairly confident that, you know, in Rose case, maybe you move him back to free safety. Maybe you play him at, at press corner, and Carter, you play him at press corner. His technique's strong. He's got good instincts. I think those are two guys that uh, will provide good long-term value and will also be able to play quickly as compared to some of the other guys that may or maybe a little bit more raw and face a little bit bigger transition time. 
and I like Carter as well. He was the very next guy uh, on, in the group uh, from the ones I mentioned. And, and ultimately, I, I think my thought process was because I had that second tier rated relatively closely, I went with the upside and potential of Collins and Rollins. And, and honestly, if I were just going based off the film, I'd probably give the edge to P.J. Williams, my number two corner, in terms of a guy, in terms of his development and readiness to come in right now. And, of course, Marcus Peters, we know he's talented. There's no denying that. It's just a matter of, of the character and the off the field. And, and one of the reasons I gave Rollins the edge over him is I think they're somewhat similar types of players, similar skill sets, similar physical dimensions. And I, I just know Rollins is clean off the field, and, and he's only going to get better. So that's kind of why I gave him the edge. But uh, I think that's going to be a really interesting position. So we kind of talked about the top group of corners. Uh, let, let's get an overrated and underrated prospect at that position from you. Uh, so I'm going to go underrated. I'll go with Ty Smith, uh, corner out of Townsend University. So not exactly known for their uh, NFL draft prospect prowess. But Ty Smith is a guy that I really like because he shows great instincts. He stood out uh, head and shoulders as uh, somebody who uh, looked like he belonged on the FBS field as an FCS player. Uh, the times that he played you know, West Virginia, uh, very physical, uh, strong tackler. Uh, he doesn't have outstanding movement skills, um, but his, his hand-eye coordination is very strong, uh, makes a lot of plus plays on the, on the ball, um, and he he's effective as a blitzer. You know, he gets off the edge and, and is disruptive. He has enough burst in short areas to close down angles. Um, I like him as a, the kind of guy that uh, you, you play in cover two at the line of scrimmage. You let him jam receivers off the line and drop off, uh, sitting at that uh, 10 to 12-yard range and break on throws underneath. Uh, maybe he can drop off on some vertical throws behind him if he's not challenged and held in the flats. Um, physical guy. You, know, you wouldn't expect an FCS guy to be as physically stout as he is as a secondary player, but he is, and he's a guy that really stood out when I watched the film. Uh, so I'm going to go with an overrated guy. I'd probably lean towards uh, Ronald Darby, uh, just because he gets a lot of love as being this you know, outstanding athlete, you know, track speed, explosiveness, the leaping ability. Uh, but when I watched him on film, I, I really didn't see uh, the uh, a finished product. You know, he only has 23 starts in, in 42 games. So I mean, he he essentially started two years of football, but um, he he didn't strike me as the kind of player that you can bring in from day one and plug in. And the, with the talk that he's getting as a 20, a top 20 potentially uh, first round talent, uh, I didn't see it. Uh, Obviously, the, the athletic traits speak for themselves, um, but his ball skills, um, he doesn't have great reach. He doesn't have great physicality. Um, he's a little bit more project than I think people want to give him credit for. Yeah, I agree with you on Darby. I, I think he's more physically talented than P.J. Williams, but I think P.J. Williams is a better football player. Uh, and I'm with you on Darby, too. I think he's a little overrated based on those uh, impressive workout numbers, the triangle numbers. He, he definitely fits the profile, but uh, I don't think he necessarily always plays up to it. 
All right, let's talk about safeties. And, and this is an interesting position simply because I, I think teams are going to have to work a little harder when it comes to safeties this year. Um, I, I think there's talent to be found, but I think you're going to have to re- find the right fit for you. Um, and, and I don't know that there's much of a consensus even at the very top, I think Landon Collins from Alabama will be the first safety off the board. But then after that, boy, all bets are kind of off. Um, I think we could see some crazy stuff at the safety position potentially in the, the early rounds. But uh, let's start with your number one guy because he's a guy I've been really high on. I've been singing his praises since I think early December. Um, and it's Demarius Randall from Arizona State. Yeah, I really liked him. Um, you know, he tested better than I thought he was going to. I certainly didn't see... Uh, nearly four four five, uh, thirty eight inch vert. Um, uh, see, he didn't strike me as that super explosiveness type of player, uh, but he's instinctive, moves well in space. Uh, he doesn't have a whole lot of problems redirecting, sticking his foot in the ground and driving. Uh, very physical tackler. Uh, his closing speed. He closes down angles in space, coming off of the back end. Uh, very well, uh, active player in the box. Uh, he has enough strength and enough speed to challenge blocks. Uh, and if you get a late block attempt on him, he has enough strength to be able to run through it. Uh, smash mouth, physical player, uh, breaks downhill 100 miles an hour. So he's a guy that you know, if you're looking for a box safety, and I think the running theme, as you look at the free sa- or the, the safety class as a whole, is you're going to get a lot of box safeties. You know, I don't mm-hmm. see a lot of guys that you can play free safety single high over the top and let them work sideline to sideline, side uh, protecting vertical throws as well as the middle of the field. Uh, I think Randall is one of the better options. Obviously, I have him as my first overall player. Uh, with that said, I, I probably wouldn't take him in the first round. Um, I have him 45th on my board. I gave him a solid second-round value. Uh, so I think you're just – you're hurting for safety classes in this year's class. So I don't doubt that Landon Collins is probably going to be the first guy off the board. Um, but to me, it's, it strikes more as um, taking the best option in a lacking class. And it's the same thing you saw last year, in my opinion. Uh, Hassan Clinton Dix, I was not particularly high on last year either. Um, I, I believe my top rated safety last year uh, was Deion Buchanan out of Washington State, and I had him with a, a late second-round grade as well. So it strikes me very similar as last year as far as the value that you're finding in the safety class. Yeah, it seems like the safety positions becoming more and more valuable, but there's fewer and fewer of them uh, in, in recent years. And I think that's why we saw some guys maybe get pushed up a little further than expected in last year's draft, whether it be Dale Buchanan, Jimmy Ward snuck into the first round, etc. Um, other than Landon Collins, who is there a safety that you think could slide in the first round? I know you have Randall rated the highest, but is there somebody else that you think uh, NFL teams, they're going to like this guy, they're going to push him up, he could be a first-round pick, or is it going to be Collins and then wait till. Re- Day two. I I don't see anybody else sneaking in. Um, I think you'll see Collins probably go somewhere in the late teens, uh, and that's going to be it. Um, uh, there's no Jimmy Ward type player this year that you know offers you that Swiss Army knife that you know you can play him in nickel, you can play him at safety. Um, so I don't foresee any other players sneaking in. I would be really surprised to see more than one safety go on day one. All right, give us an overrated and underrated safety. 
I would use Gerard Holloman as my overrated, but it seems like everybody's kind of caught on. Um, the, the, the 14 interceptions is outstanding, but he's such a freelance player. Uh, very rarely operated within, you know, a consistent uh, scheme as far as, as executing play responsibility on a snap-to-snap basis. Uh, worked very effectively as a robber underneath, uh, working if he's not challenged on both sides as a free safety deep vertically. Uh, his testing was horrible. I believe his pro day numbers were some of the worst uh, secondary players that I saw as far as uh, a 27-inch vert. Uh, the average for safeties between 2003 and 2014 was 36. So not a lot of explosiveness there with his jumps. And that raises a whole other set of questions. Is Did you prepare for this? You know, or were you hurt? You know, I didn't hear anything as far as um, issues that would have prevented him from, from training and getting his jumps in. I could be mistaken there, but uh, Holloman, he's horrendous as a tackler, takes very poor angles down into the box, uh, not physical, does not wrap up on his tackle attempts. So he's a guy that you know, when he declared, oh, my goodness, 14 interceptions, uh, but you, you take the microscope to him, and there's a, a lot left to be desired with a guy like Holloman as a safety. And if I'm going to go underrated, I'll go with James Sample out of Louisville, uh, the other Louisville safety that also declared. Um, he's a JUCO transfer, started at Washington, uh, played three games, had a shoulder labrum tear that ended up knocking him out the rest of his freshman year, uh, dropped down to JUCO, ended up transferring to Louisville. Uh, this was his one year, 13 starts, played in 16 D1 games. Uh, very, very surprising as far as the skill set that he illustrated, a uh, fairly versatile player, a uh, physical guy. Uh, he overruns some angles laterally when he's working towards the sideline, um, but he has enough skill set to play man coverage in the slot. Louisville asked him to do it at times. Uh, he has enough burst. Uh, he's 6'2". He's got some length to him uh, as a box guy, as a pressure player. Uh, he, he can disguise pressure and then close quickly and, and challenge the pocket. Um, I think he's another guy that's, you know, he's a box safety. I don't see him working deep vertically. Um, but he can work the middle of the field as another one of those robbers who, who breaks on shallow crossing patterns inside of 15 yards and a physical player. Uh, he has a, a fairly strong wingspan and challenges the ball well at the catch point. Uh, so he was a guy that stood out to me as, you know, I wasn't quite sure what to expect when I watched him, and I came away really impressed. Well, in, in, in regards to Holloman, he, he's definitely not the type of player you want to box score scout. And you don't want to box score scout any player, but specifically Holloman, because the, the, the tape tells a very different tale. But I, I tell you, and I agree with everything you said about him, but the one thing that leads me to give him a, a little bit of benefit of the doubt is, those turnovers, and just because that's such a valuable trait. And like you said, the, the, the reason he came away with so many turnovers is because he was freelancing and playing uh, outside of the scheme and, and things of that nature. But at the same time, boy, I mean, nothing turns a football game around faster than a turnover. And, and if you have a guy, even if that's all he does, 
it still can be a, a, a valuable piece of a team. So uh, Holloman's, a, Holloman's a tough guy, and I, I, like I say, I, I'm probably, I, I still probably have him a little higher than I should just because the one thing he does well is maybe one of the most valuable things in the game. Uh, and last but not least, let's just talk briefly about the specialist. Is there a kicker, punter, or long snapper that you'd invest a draft pick on this year? Is there anybody you have a conviction that guy should be drafted? And that, and those are all positions where all bets are kind of off. You can't really go by averages. It's kind of a year-by-year thing. Sometimes there's a draftable one. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes there's a team willing to use the draft pick. Sometimes there's not. Is there anybody that you'd bang your hand on the table as a kicker, punter, or long snapper and say, we have to draft this guy? Uh, I have to be honest, no. Uh, I did some brief recon work and just some specialists and Nobody really stood out. You know, there's, you know, if the Florida State kicker Guaya would have declared, you know, maybe we'd have something to talk about here in this segment. But uh, to be honest, I no bang the table prospects for me uh, in the specialist, whether it's, you know, your snappers, your uh, strictly speaking, your your coverage specialists or your your kickers and punters. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same same space as you are. I don't think there's anybody that would move me to feel like I have to invest a draft pick. I think I'd be just as content with the options that are going to be available in uh, priority free agency. Uh, if there was one, I suppose it would be Kyle Loomis, the punter from Portland State, um, if, if I had to. But uh, even Loomis, I, I think I'd rather wait uh, and, and, and bring somebody in as a free agent. So, uh, so there we are. We went way longer than I told you. I appreciate the time. Um, <laughs> I, I, we have a tendency to do that on this show. We always underestimate how long it's going to take, but uh, a great conversation. I really enjoyed this. But before we let you go, I want to give you a chance to uh, pub all your, your, your website, your publication, your Twitter account. Let us know where we can read and follow you. Well, if you aren't familiar with me, uh, my name is Kyle Krabs. I am the director of scouting at NDT Scouting. Uh, you can find us online at www.ndtscouting.com. You can find me on Twitter at NDT Scouting. Uh, the, the big piece of work that I do every year is a draft publication. Uh, the 2015 draft prospectus uh, is available for pre-order. It will be released. It's all digital PDF files. Um, $10 gets you 300 complete uh, comprehensive scouting reports that factor in film notes, uh, size measurements, athletic measurements, production experience. Uh, I take a central film grade and kind of foil those uh, against some some metrics to kind of give a, a as complete of a picture as I can possibly paint on all 300 of these guys that are in here. Um, you can pre-order at ndtscouting.com. Um, if you'd rather wait, or if you're interested but not quite sure it's for you, you can find an 18-page excerpt including 13 scouting reports at draftbreakdown.com, which is where I do a lot of my syndicate work. Uh, I am at heart a scout, not a writer. But I will share scouting reports, and if I feel compelled, I'll do some writing on at draftbreakdown.com. And you know, Brian Perez and Aaron Alosius were very gracious to offer me their platform to share some of my work. And uh, so you can also find me at draftbreakdown.com as well. 
Well, and, and you said you're still putting the final touches on the grade, but you sent me a, a copy of where you're at, and, and I, I definitely recommend it to Draft Knicks. Uh, anybody who's listened to this podcast can obviously tell that Kyle knows what he's talking about. Uh, great insight, and, and, and the guide is, is it's a really fun read. It's, it's an easy read. It's, it's, it gets to the point. You're not going to have to sit there, and, and it's not going to take you an hour to read through each player. You get to the point. You break it down real, really concisely and clearly. Uh, I, I highly recommend everybody check that out and and want to thank you for coming on you did a great job we're definitely going to get you back soon in the near future um and, and thanks for the big time commitment i appreciate it oh i could do this all night you know i really appreciate you reaching out to me scott it was a great time and you know i hope to be back on soon i enjoyed this count on it and with that we're going to call it a show and as of right now there are 36 days 22 hours 8 minutes and 22 seconds left until the 2015 nfl draft tick tock